Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Thursday. It's nice to see all the smiling faces on such a gloomy, drizzly day. My mom always told me this was for the flowers and the farmers. <laughs> I didn't really care at this age five, but, <laughs> but now we know those are important parts of life as well. So the Lord has blessed us with kind of a gloomy day outside, but a lovely day inside with, to share with our friends. And I hope you've had a chance to catch up with each other. It seems odd because we were on the bus trip last week. Some of us haven't seen each other for two weeks. We're practically in withdrawal. Uh, so I just have a couple of reminders before um, Susan starts her presentation, and that is if you get chilly, there is a pile of these nice little fuzzy blankets over on the registration table. They really feel good. Help yourself. Um, I also wanted to remind you that we do audio tape these programs, and so if you missed something this morning or if you have a friend who wasn't able to be here, um, there's a green sheet on the back that tells you how to click onto the website and pick this up again. And that being said, I was looking for Reverend Glyman, but we might have given him Thursday off. <laughs> Every once in a while, he, he, he gets a vacation day. We like to keep his spirits up. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about our speaker today. Um, first of all, Susan Templeton is a member of Christ Church of Oak Brook. And we're very fortunate in the large congregation that we have that we can pull people from all, all walks of life, but Susan is a, a special gift to us. She's got more than 20 years of experience in investment management. Um, she got her MBA from the University of Chicago, and she is the founder of Stafford Wells, which is um, Stafford Wells Advisors. She's a wealth management firm that serves individuals, families, and businesses, and she also advises people on workplace retirement plans. Um, she writes a personal finance column for today's Chicago Woman magazine, and Stafford Wells is a member of the Fee-Only Financial Planners Association and the Financial Planning Association. And all of these have, you know, they have all these letters. Her name is like this long. So that being said, please join me in welcoming Susan Templeton. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I've spoken a couple of times on this topic and variation, different variations on how not to run out of money in your lifetime. And it seems to be a very, very popular topic. Um, what I did today is I tried to take a couple of case studies that apply to the, uh, the group here. Uh, and hopefully within these case studies, each of you can find a couple of things that you can apply to your own personal situation and, and you be valuable. So I'll walk through both of these. If we could, can we wait for questions till the end? Only because once we start answering a question, we may start heading down a path and get totally off the subject and never finish. Uh, so um, I'd like to start with the first one. It's, uh, oh, wait a minute, do we have another one? Do we have an extra one for Mary Goodhart? Oh, is that an extra? Thank you, okay. It's <laughs> good. All right, let's start with Mary Goodhart. Um, a little bit about Mary. She's age 65. She's single. She's an active member of Christ Church, of course. Uh, she works out regularly. She's in good health, so she expects to have great longevity. 
Um, Mary would like to devote more time to philanthropy. She'd like to, she has a condo in Florida. She'd like to spend time in Florida. But she is afraid she's going to run out of money in her lifetime. So Mary needs help in reviewing her financial situation. Now, when we look at Mary's assets and her situation down the third item at the bottom, the third item, she owns J&J &J stock, which she inherited from her husband. She has 3,000 shares. It has a value of 253000 she has a money market account, an IRA. She has money in CDs. She has two homes, her home here and then her home in Florida. No mortgages, no debt. So her total net worth of all these assets is a million dollars. Now the income that this stream that comes out at this point is dividend from her stocks, which is roughly about $8,000. She gets social security payments of 29,000 and an IRA distribution uh, that she mandatory IRA distribution of 4500 And then Mary pulls additional assets out of her portfolio as she needs to spend money. But she really doesn't know if she's spending too much, too little, and she's very fearful of her situation. So the next page. So Mary meets with her financial planner to build a financial plan and her investment portfolio. When she meets with her financial advisor, she's gonna, we're going to review her goals in retirement. She says, my goal is not to run out of money. I don't have family. I don't want to be a burden on my friends. And I want to make sure that there's enough assets for me. The other thing, when we talk to Mary in detail, we find that Mary was once invested in the market. Um, she had assets. But when the market crashed in 2008, she, she got fearful, pulled all her money out, put it in CDs and money market funds and bond funds and has never done anything since. So as a result, Mary has lost the run-up in the market where she, her, she would have retrieved all of her losses plus gained some by now. So Mary's in a more difficult situation than she was back in 2008. So the key issues to explore with Mary is how much can Mary spend? Um, how are we going to handle Mary's reaction to the market decline going forward? And how can we guarantee Mary 100% that she's not going to lose all of her money in the market? Okay. Next page. Now's the sad truth. There is no free lunch. You're going to look at this and say, well, gee, I could have done this math myself. But we're going to talk about some strategies and options, but we're going to keep it in reality of what's going on in the market and where the opportunities are. So option one, Mary can remain in cash, CDs, um, in fixed income, where she's going to sleep very comfortably at night. She really should sell some of her J&J &J stock. It's a big part of her overall portfolio, and it's not being, she's not being diversified. And you say, well, it's Johnson & Johnson. What a high-quality company. Well, I don't know if you remember Hewlett-Packard, Kodak. There's a lot of high-quality companies out there. The market moves so fast now, you don't want to make a single bet in one company for the long term. So she needs to reduce her exposure there. Um, and in doing so, she could withdraw because she, her, she, her life expectancy is 30 years, so she has $1 million in assets. So $1 million divided by 30 is 33000 Simple math. Then you add in Social Security. Mary has 62333 to live on. Okay? There's, there's no free lunch. I'm not going to say, Mary, gee, I've got something for you that's going to earn you 8% on your money, and it's, and it's guaranteed. It doesn't exist out there. Um, and if you hear those kind of numbers, you should start to get nervous. Okay? 
But we're going to propose option two to Mary. We're going to say, Mary, let's build a diversified portfolio, and a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and alternative investments. Then we're going to withdraw. The portfolio should return, on average, a little over 6% per year. You're probably going to pay some in taxes, so we're going to say your net earnings on your portfolio are 5% on average. And then you can withdraw 5% every year, the earnings, on average, which is $50,000. What you're doing here, though, is you're keeping your principal intact on the long run, and you're just, and you're just withdrawing your, your growth in your portfolio. Then you add in Social Security, so her total net take is 79000 Now, that's still a very conservative approach because we're leaving her principal intact. But that's, that could be plan B for Mary, who's very conservative. Okay, so Mary has these two options. And we can give her option three and option four, and then we can probably do some combination of them based on what she's comfortable with. We want, what we want to minimize, though, is if we're going to invest in the market with Mary, we don't want Mary to panic another time the market goes down. We can't afford to make that mistake again. Okay. Now, there, if we go to the next box, the ways to increase cash. We can say to Mary, you know, two-thirds of your net worth is in your homes. That's a high percentage of your investment in real estate. When we talk about being diversified, two-thirds in real estate of your assets is very high. So perhaps sell one of your homes, either sell your home that you live in now and downsize to a smaller home, or sell your Florida home. And actually, you're not in Florida that much. You have the upkeep, the overhead, the taxes, the assessments. Um, maybe you're better off selling your Florida home and just renting when you go down there. That way, that will free up some cash to invest in a diversified, more diversified portfolio for you. So the, here's, those are a couple of choices for Mary. Now, when we build Mary's investment portfolio, we start with the theory of a third stocks, a third fixed income, and a third alternative. And we should all try to think of it investing that way, a third, a third, a third. Then, depending on Mary's risk level and where she is in her lifespan, we can adjust up and down. But that's a good basis to work from. If you go to the next page, we talk about diversify. Within those categories, we can diversify even further. We can allocate among the major asset classes for stocks. We have domestic stocks, international stocks, emerging market, bonds. We want bonds at this point that are not really sensitive to an increase in interest rates because as interest rates go up, the value of your bond holdings go down. So we want there are other bonds out there, though, that aren't that are less sensitive. There's something called floating rate bonds, and they go up as interest rates go up. Uh, we have, there's um, investment tips, investment uh, protection. I'm losing, I'm forgetting. There are, um, there are inflation-protected bonds issued by the U.S. government. So as inflation goes up, the value of those bonds go up. There are a variety of other fixed-income instruments that are not sensitive to interest rate changes. And then we, invest, we look at alternative investments, real estate investment trusts, master limited partnerships, commodities, hedge funds. You may go, oh boy. But what we're trying to do is with alternative investments, we want investments that perform differently than stocks do or bonds do. And that will minimize the volatility and the risk in your portfolio. Okay? So we present all of this to Mary. And Mary, we work with Mary to come to a solution of something that she's very comfortable with. She, said, I th she says, I realized the decision by going to all fixed income, such as CDs, 
those types of instruments, the, the danger of doing that. One, I'm never going to get any return on my money. Two, with inflation at 2.5%, what are CDs paying, 1%? She said, I'm actually going to be losing spending power over my lifetime. I recognize I've got to step out on the risk curve just a little bit, but I don't want to go too far. So what we decide to do is that the third that's going to go into fixed income or bonds, we're going to put that into the highest quality, safest securities. So Mary knows she's got a third of her portfolio that's, that's bulletproof. The other two-thirds, we're going to invest in stocks and alternative investments. And then what we're also going to do is Mary's out of the market right now. So you don't want to take all her money and just go invest it in the market because anything, you know, you could invest, be investing in the peak. None of us really know. So what we do is we do something called dollar cost averaging. It's a very conservative way to work your way into the market. And it's, it can, it's risk reducing. It's been proven over and over. And we dollar cost average over a period of 12 months. In other words, we invest her portfolio very slowly over a period of 12 months rather than all at once. Okay. Um, and then Mary's decided that maybe she doesn't have to have the Florida home, um, that sleeping, better, sleeping well at night is more important than owning a lot of real estate. So she decides to sell the Florida home, free up some cash, and she can rent when she goes down there to visit. Okay. So that's Mary's situation. Hopefully she's all set moving forward and a lot more comfortable uh, in the way that her portfolio is lined up. Next we go to Jim and Diane. Jim and Diane, is the, the other handout? Oh. We got extra ones? Okay. Um, I'm just afraid we start getting, is that, okay. um, there's a song, they sing Jim and Diane in the song, that's just kind of came to me, so that's, that's why we have Jim and Diane. Um, Jim and Diane are 74 and 72 respectively, they're both retired, they're active in Christ Church, they're very philanthropic, they're involved in the annual mission trip every year, and they live right here in Oak Brook. Jim and Diane's financial profile um, they're in a, in a much better cash situation than Mary Goodhart is. Um, they have cash, they have bonds and bond funds, they have IRAs, they have their home in Oak Brook, and then they have a home in Lake Geneva. So their total net worth of all their real estate and their investments is roughly $4.5 million. Right. Their financial goals is to continue living their existing lifestyle throughout their lives, but they're risk adverse. Um, Jim likes to invest in bonds, bond funds. That's where his comfort level is. He likes to be active in understanding what the, his investments are. But he does realize now that his bond funds have been declining lately in the last two or three months. And he, as interest rates go up, maybe he needs to find um, some alternative ways to invest the money in his portfolio. He's also considering changing advisors. Um, he currently works with an advisor in Oak Brook, uh, Oak Brook Hills Bank. There is no Oak Brook Hills Bank, but um, and, but it hasn't heard from the person in three years. So he's thinking maybe it's time to make a change. So Jim isn't sure what to do. Talks to his son, who's an MBA student at the University of Chicago. He talks to his son about um, hiring a new advisor. And his, his son gives him this advice. He says, hire an advisor with over five years' experience in the industry. 
You want an advisor that has been through a few market declines to understand what people go through, how they feel, their risk tolerance, and also to not that someone that respects the market and what it, the damage it can do to someone's portfolio. So you also want an advisor um, who has clients similar to you, because he says to his father, you're retired, you have different needs than someone that's a 35 or 40 year old person, you have different expectations, want someone that recognizes that. that. So ask the advisor if he has clients like you, and if he does, ask for two references and call those references. Um, find out how your advisor is compensated. Advisors work on a variety of different ways. An advisor can earn commissions on the investments that they sell you. They can work on a fee basis, where it's a percentage of assets under management. Or they can do a combination of both. Let me, I'll tell you a story that happened to me that really drove home this commission versus fee thing. Um, we were renovating a house, and there was a decorator that I really wanted to use. And I brought the decorator in and interviewed her, and she said that, and this is nothing against decorators, um, and I said, how do you work? I figured I'd pay her an hourly fee. She goes, oh no, she says, I'll do all your decorating, your drapes, your tables, your, all your furniture, and I just give you a bill. And I said, well, when you buy my dining room table, do you just give me a bill f for the table? She goes, yeah, but it's the she said, the bill is from me, not from the manufacturer. And I said, so I don't know what you paid for the table. She goes, right. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't know something out of the little resale place down the street versus a Chippendale out of London. I wouldn't know that, she, I mean, she could bill me for thousands and I wouldn't know the difference. And not that she would, but my concern is I, want, I don't mind paying a reasonable fee, but I want to know what I'm paying. Well, the same goes when you bought with, you're working with an advisor, you may want to know what you're paying. And if you're working on a commission basis, it actually is disclosed, but it's disclosed in that thick prospectus you get in the mail. So if you care to read it every time you make an investment to find out exactly what you're paying your advisor, you can, but there's a lot easier way to do it. In addition to that, by working with an advisor on a fee-only basis, your incentives are more aligned, your advisor's incentives are more aligned with yours. And let me tell you why. Because if the advisor's, if you're working with an advisor that says, takes a 1% fee on your assets, the only way they're going to make more money is if they grow your portfolio. It's not about making transactions, it's about growing your assets. So your incentives are aligned. If the advisor is working on a commission basis, they're going to make money every time they incur a transaction. There's a lot of wonderful commission advisors out there, but how are you going to know which one has your best interests? This is a business relationship you have with this person. It's not a personal relationship, it's business. So set up the incentives, align your incentives correctly up front, and that way you don't have to monitor what your advisor is doing as, as in, in as much detail going forward. So, okay. so th in addition to other advice that his son gives him, um, find a firm whose advisor is an, uh, his firm is a registered investment advisor instead of a broker-dealer. Now, I should, I should qualify everything. These are the opinions of the speaker here, and there are different opinions out there. Um, so this is just my opinion on it. But a registered investment advisor, by law, is a fiduciary and does need to put your interests ahead of theirs. A broker-dealer does not. Okay. Um, remember the situation in 2008, you may have noticed uh, Goldman Sachs uh, made all this money on mortgage, subprime mortgages. 
What they did is they packaged them up and then they'd sell them to their retail clients. They were subprime mortgages. They were mortgages that defaulted. The retail clients got the bad end of the deal. When the market fell apart, they lost a lot of money. Goldman Sachs made a lot of money on their clients. It was totally legal what they did. Unethical, yes, but illegal. So my feeling is, unless you want to monitor everything, get all your conflicts of interest out of the way and make sure you have a very pure relationship. Um, ask your advisor how often they're willing to meet with you. Semi-annually or quarterly should be expected. And if that's what you want, you should be able, that's a reasonable expectation and request. Okay. Um, and also, some advisors do just investments. Other advisors do a little more financial planning and advising. So make sure you decide what you need from your advisor and ask them if they can do that for you. Okay. Then, this is something might be new that you can add to your, your bucket list, is does your advisor create an investment policy statement for you? This is something that we always used to do for big corporate pension plans, uh, foundations and endowments, but now we're doing it for the individual investor. And an investment policy statement is an outline of what your assets are, your expectations, your goals, your fears, your spending. And then what we do is we outline how we're going to achieve your goals for you, how we're going to position your portfolio, the ranges that we're going to invest in of stocks and bonds, and what your expectations should be. So it's all outlined in a document up front. So that way there's no surprises. It's a very fair request to make. Um, then once you get all of the above or whatever is important to you on this list agreed to with your advisor, make sure you get it in writing. Again, these are very reasonable expectations. You should feel very comfortable asking for every single thing that's on this list. So now we're going to... Jim and Diane have found an advisor they like to work with. They've decided that they need to go forward. They've explained their concerns, their fears. And so the advisor looks at their assets and says, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do some bucketing. And we're going to create a bucket for you of safety assets. So what we do is we're going to separate out funds that they're going to maintain their value in a difficult recessionary type market. Um, again, these are assets that would be invested in CDs or U.S. government types of um, investments. With Jim and Diane, we've decided that $1.5 million is how much they want to put in their bucket. That's their safety net. And basically, they've, they've projected out that their lifespan is 23 years out maximum. So we're going to take $1.5 million divided by 23 years. If the, if the world falls apart tomorrow... They have $65,217 a year of safety money for the rest of their life, plus Social Security of $35,000. So they've got $100,000 a year no matter what happens. Plus they have their two, their two homes that are fully paid for. So considering if there's bread lines down the street then, or soup lines, um, they're going to be in very good shape relative to the rest of the U.S. economy. Um, so we've protected their portfolio. And you know, you may have done bucketing in your lifetime, but you just never gave it the, the, you know, that, that label. You put money away for your children's college education. You put it aside in a separate account. It's in a bucket. And it's, you, know, you have an investment horizon on it, so you invest it accordingly to that investment horizon. This is very much the same thing. Now the nice thing for Jim and Diane, they can afford 
they're in a financial position that they can afford to put assets aside and let them grow below inflation rate to, um, so that they can sleep at night. Now, we, Jim and Diane want to know how much they can draw down um, reasonably each year to live. Again, the most conservative approach to investing their portfolio would be to take just their liquid assets. Those means not the homes. Take the homes out. Just take their investments, which is two point, roughly $2.5 million, divided by their lifespan, $106,000 a year. That's an extremely conservative way of doing it. A conservative way is just to take their total assets. Because your home is, a, is an asset, and it does it is growing. I realize at one point it was declining, but now it's growing. It's an asset, which is roughly $4.5 million, and they could take out $198,000 conservatively over time. Now, you realize that if the market isn't growing as aggressively for them, at some point they're going to run out of cash and need to sell one of their homes, which is probably fine because they may be at an age where they don't want to carry two homes anyway at that point. And then they, they add in Social Security of 35000 roughly $35,000. Okay. Now, when Jim and Diane, they're fearful of running out of money or Mary Goodhart, they say, well, what if Social Security stops paying? I think you should consider Social Security is like investing in a government bond. It's, if the last place people are going to default is on their senior citizens and the obligation they have to them on their assets. Um, if they're going to change Social Security, they're going to change it for, with younger people that can afford to make up the difference in their lifetime. And the other reason that they're not going to touch Social Security is the greatest voting population is the seniors. So if anything is, that is probably, I consider Social Security probably one of the most secure investments out there if you're over 60 years old. All right. Um, now let's go to the next page. When you look at maximizing your returns in the portfolio, you should be looking at three things. Most people look at one. They say, well, what's my return? Well, you know, that's one part of the portfolio is your overall return. But there's so many other ways to maximize the returns on your investments, and people overlook them. It's, it's taxes, one, two, fees, three, diversification. One and two are risk-free. So why aren't we doing more of it? I don't, we need to do more and more in this area because if you're concerned about volatility, you've got two risk-free ways to help maximize your returns. Taxes are very important in your portfolio. Fees play a huge role, more than you think. And then diversification is, is critical. So let's walk through each one just briefly. Taxes, when you have in your portfolio, if you have high turnover types of inv investments, they're going to create short-term gains. Those are going to be taxed at your maximum tax rate. If you have bonds in your portfolio or bond funds that kick off income, taxed at your maximum tax rate. Those types of investments need to be in your IRAs or tax-deferred type accounts. Now, if you have low turnover type investments, you hold long-term buy and hold kind of stocks um, or stocks that are paying dividends. I'm sure a lot of you have those. Dividends are taxed at a lower tax rate. Capital gains on the sale of a stock over a long-term period is also taxed at your lower tax rate. Make sure you have those adequately uh, placed in your tax-deferred versus taxable accounts. The other thing, which I don't have time to get into today, there's a real science to drawing down your IRA assets to, to minimize your tax exposure. 
Um, so you want to look at, if you're, if you're taking out of your IRAs, be careful and work with your accountants so that you don't, it doesn't kick you up into a higher tax bracket. Okay. Managing fees. You could be paying 3 to 5% of fees on some of your investments, and you probably don't know it. In a, in a, in a mediocre market environment where, the, where your port, the stock market's only earning 3 to 5% a year, you're going to end up with a zero return. So be, think of fees play a huge role in your portfolio. That's why when you talk with an advisor and interview an advisor, you want to know how much you're paying in fees to that advisor and how much you're paying in the underlying investments. Some investments are very expensive, and they don't justify it. Um, one of the strategies that's come out in the last few years is, is something called exchange-traded funds. You've probably heard the word before. They're like an index fund. I'm giving a generalization here. They're much, you remember, like, Vanguard once came out with the first S&P 500 index fund, and the fee on that fund was less than a half a percent. Well, now... These exchange-traded funds are like index funds, and they allow you to get into a variety of different asset classes at very, very low fees. It's very efficient. Um, the fees on these funds could be as low as a quarter, one quarter of 1%. But you could go into a mutual fund where it has an active manager, and you could be paying as much as one and a quarter to 2%. My argument is these exchange-traded funds are so efficient, and, and more than half the time, they outperform the mutual fund. So why pay for the mutual fund, pay all that money, if they're not going to give you added performance? That's not always the case, but I think it's something you need to consider. Fees play a huge role. The fees you pay your advisor and the fees that you pay on your investments. Okay. So we talk about taxes. We talk about fees. Those two are risk-free. The third is a diversified portfolio. That's risk-reducing. And when you build your diverse, think about a third, a third, a third, um, stocks, bonds, and alternatives. Now, when I talk about alternatives, I talk about them because it's a, they, can be, they can lower the volatility in the portfolio. There's some alternatives that act very much like stocks. Those aren't good alternatives. You want alternatives that act differently. We call it low correlation. Um, to the rest of the portfolio. Okay. So now with Jim and Diane, if we go to the last box, one, they've gone through the interviewing process, they've hired an investment advisor, they now have an investment policy statement about their plan going forward. They've reduced their fear because they've funded a bucket of safe investments. They've determined the amount of funds that they can comfortably live on. And they're maximizing their returns by managing taxes and fees and diversifying their investments. And happily ever after, we hope. So. Okay. All right. I know we, and we, to start off, I think, I know there was a question about the original, um, the first Mary Goodhart. Well, I was going to ask about, you said six, uh, on that option two. Mm-hmm. I did? Okay. Yeah, but oh, I have sorry. another question. I forgot you told me to wait. <laughs> I have another question, and I'm going to um, utter the outspoken forbidden word, annuities. Mm -hmm. What is your viewpoint on annuities, and why are they considered the bad guys by stockbrokers? Because the annuities cannot be sold by stockbrokers? Is that it? Annuities can be sold by stockbrokers. What? 
And the question was, why are annuities bad guys and, and stockbrokers don't like them and why aren't they, they selling them? Um, I believe annuities are bad guys. You are, the marketing is great. It's a little bit of smoke and mirrors for someone that's not reading the materials in great depth. They'll say, you know, we guarantee you a 7% return on your portfolio or whatever the market does, whichever is better. So you see your portfolio go up, but when you annuitize and you start getting, someone's shaking her head, she's very familiar with it. You annuitize and you go to take your stream of funds out, it's maybe a lot less than you thought. And you see the bucket of money, but you can't get to it. Um, because the insurance companies, they do an analysis to determine the, how someone's longevity. So you have to beat that analysis in order to win at the annuity game. Um, I, and I hope I'm making sense here. Broker, I'm, brokers like to sell annuities often because they, they have a high commission rate associated with them. Uh, we don't pay the commission. Well, you do, I mean, this simple math. Okay, you don't, the question was you don't pay the commission. Simple math. If you've got an insurance company that's making 2.5% on your investment per year, and you've got a broker that just made 10, between 7 and 10%, someone's paying for it. And it's not the insurance company. It's you, ultimately. Um, so it, it's, it, I actually wrote, and I, um, it's on my website. I wrote an article. We did an analysis of an annuity and uh, the better options that are out there. Annuities are for some people. It's just a big price for a lot for protection. It's just so they're not necessarily a bad thing either. Are are you saying the annuity has a built-in cost factor that's not shown? They, if you read through the prospectus, there are the fees are spelled out. Um, but really, what you're seeing is that guarantee of seven percent, or what the market is doing. So when you go to annuitize, do you understand what it means when you go to annuitize, everybody? That means you, you, at that point, then you start getting paid out. Okay. The value of your account, you would think that based on that value, you'd be getting more, a bigger payout. And depending on how your annuity is set up, upon your death, the funds um, remain with the insurance company. So there is no residual um, so those are, those are some of the issues with it. There, there's a place for them. It's just, it's, it's expensive insurance, in my opinion. So, so in essence, whether you see it or not, you're saying that they have a built-in factor that reduces your return on investment, in essence. The return on your investment is there. If they guaranteed you 77%, you've got it. They guarantee, that's a guarantee. They're not, that's the case. But when you look at your account <clears throat> and it's grown at 7%, you, don't have, you can't access those funds without a penalty. Oh, okay, so it's the penalty costs. And is it, is it the, uh, the principle that's then being drawn down on that, that they're multiplying your 7% against? No, they're growing it. It's, it grows at 7% annualized every year. So that, you know, when you start drawing down, it will start, you know, the, um, the growth of the portfolio will start taking, it almost doesn't, well, I understand where you're going. Are you talking about from a taxable standpoint? Taxable. Taxable and real in pocket. Right. Um, I, I'm not an expert on this, on that part, but 
when you start start drawing down, um, I'm not sure. It may, from a tax standpoint, matter where it's coming from. Okay, so you're saying, in essence, same amount of dough that you put in and did it in other things, you'll, you'll get a higher return, however they factor it and play it in. And I'm really confused because I thought, you know, they have to expose all that on the front end. And um, you're better off somewhere else in, in most cases. It's just, it's a very, it's, it's protection of the maximum amount. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. When, if, if ever, is it worthwhile to convert parts, part of an IRA into a Roth IRA when uh, you have to pay the tax on the, on the rollover? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, but what you want to do is work very carefully with your accountant. And if you have a period where you have a lot of deductions one year and you want to convert part of your IRA to a Roth and you can do it at a very low tax rate, that's what you want to do. Um, so as to minimize your taxes going forward. How are you going to know ahead of time, though, what the, what the market's going to do? Um, I'd say in November, sit down with your accountant and um, look at what your um, what your deductions are. Which kind of you do a quick back of the envelope summary of your deductions and what your tax rate's going to be, and then they can factor in how much of your IRA you should convert to a Roth based on the tax rate that you're willing to pay to do that. Thank you. The only way I know how to define this question is, do you know the difference between the mission statement of a registered investment advisor and a broker-dealer? And what makes the registered investment advisor the safer bet for me, hypothetically? Okay. Um, Okay. Um, I want to change the word, though, from mission statement. Okay. Can we change that a little bit? Because my mission statement could be very, or a mission statement of a registered investment advisor could be, you know, to serve and protect and all of this. It could be exactly the same as the broker-dealer. But um, a, but from a governmental regulation responsibility, the two differ. Um, the, the registered investment advisor has a fiduciary responsibility to put their client's interests first. A broker-dealer can do, there's a term, and I can't remember the name of the term, but basically can place clients in suitable, that's the word, suitable investments. So I'll give you a good example. Um, You can tell I'm biased on this one. Um, Morgan's, um, Jamie Dimon's firm, um, Chase. Chase Chase has gotten, um, the SEC has been investigating Chase. Their brokers there have been um, putting clients very aggressively in company products. Chase Mutual Funds, and the majority of Chase Mutual Funds, and this is just what I heard on the radio. This is I haven't gone in and looked at every Chase Mutual Fund. Majority of Chase Mutual Funds are kind of two-star funds. They're not, they're not, have not been good performing funds. But when there's a better investment for the client, they've still been putting them in Chase funds because Chase makes more money off their own funds than a Vanguard fund. 
So they've been, but they were never, they never had to pay a fine because what they were doing was investing clients in suitable investments, not the best ones. So that's, that's, that's the, and you know, I will tell you, the industry is going toward registered investment advisors because people are recognizing the difference. There are a lot of very good brokers out there that do the right things for their clients. And they're getting up and leaving and walking out and starting their own firms because of this problem. So it's not to say if you have a broker now that that makes them a bad person. Um, it just, they have more um, ability to do um, things that are in better interest of the firm. So is it fair to say that the definitions are somewhat equal to a point? Uh, the definitions are equal that, yes, to some point. But yes, a registered investment advisor takes it a, a further, much further out to the fiduciary liability. Broker dealer then have the capacity to be more flexible in terms of. Does the broker dealer have the ability to put the money in funds that are more flexible and maybe can give you higher, higher ROIs than the registered investment advisor? Or can they do both the same? Uh, and how? Do, and the other side of that question is how do they keep how they place their clients first? And uh, they don't know what the markets are going to do in the future. So, what kind of guidelines do they have? Would those guidelines maybe prevent them from getting better ROIs or something of that nature? Um, the brokerage firms do not um, have access to all the same funds that registered investment advisors do. And both firms do some deg a degree of due diligence, maybe some more than others, on the investments. Um, the registered investment advisor, I think that brokerage firms are so worried about liability as well that and reputation that they don't I'll just easily say, okay, an investment's, you know, go ahead and invest in anything. Um, but nor does, I think, a registered investment advisor because they know they have that fiduciary responsibility. So I can't see where one is better than the other in terms of an, providing investments. It, it's, it's firm independent. It's, it's, it's the, and it's the firm. It's the back office. It's the research um, that's out there. I'm just curious about where a broker leaves a large leaves a large firm and strikes off on his own, but then he has to uh, be tied in with with another brokerage firm in order to uh, get the uh, paperwork and the payouts, and that's not quite very clear, but that. That's a general idea. Say if you left your large firm and went off on your own, then you'd, you'd need to have somebody to handle the payouts and do the book work. Mm -hmm. uh, if a broker leaves a firm and goes and starts their own registered investment advisor, generally, and I'm giving you a lot of generalizations because I'm just trying to simplify it. So, um, but generally, they, what they'll do is they'll tie in with the TD Ameritrade, a Schwab, or a Fidelity. 
and that'll be their custodian. That's where your assets will be held. You know, that's something else that I did not put on the list. You always want to make sure your assets are held at an independent custodian. You never write a check to the broker, okay, or to the firm. You want it to the custodian. Um, James Dean for the benefit, you know, um, and then or TD Ameritrade custodian for James Dean. That's what, that's how you want where your money invested. But so they generally will do that. So um, when a broker leaves, they could also tie in with another broker dealer. They could say, I'm independent, but I have a brokerage firm relationship, like with an LPL or something like that. You're, you're, he's still a broker dealer, he or she. But if they go with a registered investment advisor, then they become a registered investment advisor, and the funds are held at an independent custodian. The, um, the question was, it would be an advantage then to go with a registered investment advisor because your assets would be at a TD Ameritrade or a Schwab. Um, that is true, but I, I also feel strongly that if your money is with Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch is the custodian, I'm pr I'd be pretty comfortable with that one. Um, that's a pretty solid organization. It's when you get into these little firms that I start to get nervous. Um, I never heard of the term registered investment advisor. So are you saying that just because they are or have that title that we can trust them? And who who uh, checks them to see that they're out there for our best interests? Um, is there some That's accountability? That's a very good question. No, just because they're a registered investment advisor, don't trust them. You need to do due diligence. And it's a very good question. It's just It's not an automatic blessing. Um, the Financial Planning Association, um, or the, and there's a group called the National Fee-Only Planning Association, um, have members, and you can go on and, and look at their members that are in good standing. There's also a, um, a organization called FINRA, FINRA. If you Google it, FINRA, it's a government organization. Um, all the, if you're talking to a firm, you can pull up their, um, it's, a, it's a filing document, and it's not, you got to read through it. You've got to. And you can get through it. We all can. And it's like a 20-page document, and it tells you everything about the firm and how they work and if they've been written up for any issues um, or gotten in trouble for anything. Those are two good ways to start. Then that, the getting references is a third good way to, is a third layer of safety. Fourth, the money's gonna sit with a custodian, not with them. Fifth, you've sat down and you've gone through your whole financial outlook and you have an investment policy statement in your hand. Those, all those things should stack you up pretty well that you're in very good shape at that point. Because really, they can't access your funds once they're with the custodian. They're only allowed to take out the fee that you've agreed that they, that you've mutually agreed upon. The only thing they can do while it's invested is, in, um, while it's with the custodian, is buy and sell, is invest. And you've, you have access online to your account all the time so you can see what they're doing. When you have a fairly IRA account, at 70 and a half, you start to take mandatory distributions, and if you don't, you're fined 50%. Correct. And what happened was 
um, mandatory distributions were taken out and I was put in a totally different tax bracket and I went into shock because it put me in another bracket totally and I have a good CPA and I thought maybe he made a mistake and I checked it again and um, was the same thing. Mm -hmm. I was in, put in a totally different tax bracket so there goes your IRA uh, as far as your counting on that money. You know, that's Start a really... that question from the top. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, um, you know, that, that was a point, and I, and I almost headed down that road, and, um, but I thought, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to pull too much in here. But by holding off on your IRAs and letting them grow and grow and grow, and then all of a sudden you've got those mandatory distributions, that's exactly what can happen. And you, so that you should, well, ideally you manage that going forward. You see that coming, you say, I'm going to start withdrawing earlier and bringing some of the assets down in that portfolio when my tax bracket's lower. Um, so you do some pl tax planning there. It's peace of mind having those IRAs there, you know? And, and um, I had no idea it would put me in another tax bracket, but it was a shock. Yeah. Yeah. That, that part is, is really a, a problem. And another thing is with Social Security, there were two years where we didn't get any increases. Mm -hmm. So when they, when they used the Social Security as part of your income, you can't count on that. And I think we just got 2% this year, mm -hmm. and it was a, you know, a few dollars. So when that's used as an example for income for these people on the sheets, those are things that aren't always there. Um, you have a point. I will say, in, in, you know, the government, the way it calculates inflation is a little different than we feel it when we're out there buying groceries or gas for our car. So it's frustrating because they do try to keep it tied with the inflation rate. I think we need to keep in mind that when IRAs were first established, this wonderful dream, they were imagining that most people, when they get to age 70 and a half, had lower income levels, and therefore the distributions would not necessarily kick them into a higher tax bracket. Obviously, that's not does not apply to everybody. It does. You're exactly right, and that's you know, and one of the things that I talk to my clients about that are in their 50s. I say, are you doing, they don't do tax management. They don't sit down with their accountant in the middle of the year and, and look at this and do some tax planning. And they get kicked into these higher tax brackets in April and they're crying. And I'm like, you did no tax planning. There's, you, could have, you could have avoided some of this. So, and one of the things that's critical is you plan, uh, you do planning with your IRAs. Yeah, it's a good, very good point. This might be a little off the subject, but do you have an opinion about reverse mortgages? Um, a two-part answer. I, I don't, however, anytime I see a lot of hands get involved in something, I see a lot of fees, and I see, and the person that gets screwed is the person that's, that's on the end of it that has the home, um, would be my inclination. Um, so I'd look at it really carefully before you did anything. Uh, on reverse mortgages? 
you know, over time, a lot of these strategies, if they make sense and they're good strategies, a lot of more people get into the market. It gets very competitive, drives the fees down, and it becomes more efficient. So another thing is just, you know, just remember when high-definition TVs came out and they were $4,000? You just, just wait a couple of years. So that may be the same case here. Eric. Oh, uh, have you ever done a comparison between the annuitization rates and minimum distribution rates? Let's say at 70, would you do better with a life and tenure certain or the minimum distribution that the government tells you that you have to take out? Um, I couldn't answer that. I haven't. No. It'd be an interesting uh, study. If no one else has a question, I do. I cannot think of an industry that has been more radically transformed than the financial industry by computers, from the exchange level to the brokerage level to the individual level. It has been a landslide. Is there a particular website or websites that you would recommend for individuals to go to that if they not necessarily give advice, but give information that would be beneficial to know? There are many of them out there. There are legions of them. Can you think of some that might be a little bit better for individuals, that might be a little bit more helpful than others? Um, I think uh, two of my favorites is Kiplinger. They have, they have an inter interactive software as well if you want to do some planning. Um, it's, a nice, it's a simple interactive. You put in a few variables and you'll get results. Uh, another favorite firm of mine is Vanguard. Um, Vanguard? Mutual funds, they have a website that's educational. Um, Fidelity, yeah. My only thing is, my only concern is I had someone come in my office the other day that used to work at Fidelity, and she was a, a service person. And um, she used to work there. She left, and she's now working for one of the trust companies. And I said, you know, I send people to Fidelity that have smaller amounts. I said, you, got, you, know, you guys are efficient. You sit down. You give them... A good, good asset allocation. Granted, they're mostly fidelity funds, which aren't all that great sometimes. But it's, it's from a fee standpoint, it's just it's it's a decent way to go. And she said, you. She said, I left there. She said, I got tired because I had a client. She said, I had 350 people that I worked with, that I serviced with individuals. She said, one day Fidelity told me I had to sell 15 annuities within the week. She goes, I had to go through my list and see who I could sell an annuity to. I'm like, what? You know, it's, what happened to whether it's appropriate or not? And she was, she was so turned off by that that she ended up leaving the firm. And I don't know if maybe it was a one-time thing. Maybe Fidelity doesn't do it anymore. Hopefully we're all smart enough to know when someone tries to sell us something, we just say no. But I like the pureness of someone like a Vanguard. I think they're very objective. Um, Oh, Kiplingers, K-I-P-L-I-N-G-E-R dot com, I think. They're my favorite. Oh. Okay. Is there any easy way, and this is probably a very basic question, any easy way to change bank accounts? An easy way. Now, I know you can do it, but it's a pain. And the other thing is, is there a website which ranks banks? 
the credibility, quality of? Um, I've changed checking accounts myself, and it's just, you know, you open up a new one, you close the old one. If you're changing well, broke, I, go ahead. Well, it's just that, you know, the Social Security, the Social Security numbers, and with your accountants and tax people, you know, you have to catch everybody in there. Yes. I uh, just thought there was an easy way. I was just trying to cop out. <laughs> I don't know. If you do, let me know, please. On okay, that. thank you. And then the second part of your question was? The second part of the Pardon question me? was, is there a website that will rank a bank? Oh, he said rank a bank. Is rank that a true? Bank. Oh. <laughs> You know, like you mentioned Chase, yeah. they're not a favorite of mine. Okay. And is there a website to go to find out about the bank rankings? Thank um, you very much, by the way. Thank you. Um, I don't, there probably is, I don't know it. In my, with our business and working with, um, we kind of, you know intuitively because you're in the business all day and you're seeing the banks that are trading out there, the, the public banks, and you kind of know their credibility and the quality um, because you're just, you're immersed in it all the time. And, be, and since I'm not particularly investing directly in banks, um, um, I don't have a need to go much deeper. Your CDs are protected. I wouldn't go beyond the FDI insur FDIC insurance in any one bank. I'd spread it around. But we've looked, we've looked at banks that have been poorly capitalized. I mean, they've just been a mess since day one. And the FDIC came in, Sheila Baird, and um, everybody got their money back. I mean, this has been a, they have been consistent across the board, really good about it. Um, so I wouldn't go to some podunk bank just saying, but I think any of your Midwest or regional and larger banks, you're probably, as long as you, you know, just stay within the requirements. I'd, there are there are um, websites in that that will guide and, and direct you regarding the, the banks. However, their criteria may not be applicable to you, or their criteria may be very good in one way but all screwed up in another as far as trying to train, change out of them. And the other part of it is you have to keep rolling it over or, or watching it all the time because banks continuously change in their capacity. So... It kind of gets yes, there is, but it's not necessarily a, a great, a great guideline because they keep changing. If you have a kind advisor, um, they have access to banks through trade, like TD Ameritrade. You can buy CDs through TD Ameritrade, um, and they'll have a whole list of all the banks and the CD rates for thirty, sixty, ninety, one five. And um, if you have a benevolent advisor, they will, they can do all that for you too. The other thing, there are certain banks that uh, give favorable rates, shall we say, to senior citizens. Banks. Uh, Hinsdale Bank locally has an excellent program for seniors. You get a fee-free account. It's something to keep in mind because larger banks like Chase and Citibank really nickel and dime you. I bet they do. That's a really good point. You know, one other thing, Hinsdale Bank is my bank, and I wouldn't... Oh, um... She said Hinsdale Bank and Trust has a great program for seniors, and they have good rates. And you have to be careful with some of these other banks because they'll nickel and dime you and make it very difficult. And I was just commenting, Hinsdale Bank and Trust is my bank. 
And a couple of years ago, I went in and put some money in a CD, and I didn't like the rate. So I walked in the president's office, and I said, I don't like this rate. Can you, and he said, I can do, I'll do better. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I got a better rate just by asking. And then I went in a year ago, and I asked again. They said no. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt to ask. Right. Hi. Um, would the Ginny May uh, fund from Vanguard be impacted just as a regular bond fund would be impacted? Yes. It would be? Yes. Those are mortgage bonds. They behave a little bit differently, but they are still very interest rate sensitive, and we call duration or maturity sensitive. It, yes. It's a sh- shorter maturity rate, actually, than most bond funds are. I think it's three to five years. In my opinion, I'm a little worried of even short term because I think we might see more increase in rates on the short term than the long term. They want to keep mortgage rates kind of down. But on the short term, they want to help people by getting a better rate. So I can see short-term rates going up higher or as a percentage increase. Okay, more. thank you. My personal opinion. That's Just out of curiosity, uh, I had the dealings with the Northern Trust a few years, several years ago. My mother had a CD in the, in the bank. And they sent her a letter in legalese, and she didn't know what it was all about. But they had quit paying interest on her CD and sent this letter out. And I think they were charging her to have the money in the bank. I wouldn't, I'm not sure about that. I was so angry at the time. But they, they, they quit paying and sent that letter out to her, and she didn't understand what was going on. Mm until somebody in the family finally caught up with the letter. And uh, I haven't had much any use for Northern Trust, and it's supposed to be such a wonderful institution. So there. That's an interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. One advisor, I have a financial planner, and before anything is done, she will go over the account with me, but then she takes down to the big quarters, and instead of having just one person give an opinion, they go through their channels and find out whether that's correct. Now, what the gentleman is saying there, I think you might have been a little misinformed, because I have had this, that's never happened, and I've been with them for years, and I wouldn't change because they put me in a wonderful position. Okay, so we got a pro and a con. And, and banks are like anything else. They're made up of people. <laughs> Everybody's had a bad hair day. You know, just, just, um, and I know we're all enjoying, Susan. Instead of taking a formal coffee break kind of thing, I don't want to disrupt the flow of questions. Mm-hmm. If you need to take a bathroom break, get another cup of coffee, whatever, just uh, go ahead and just do that. And we're going to keep picking her brain as long as we can keep her. This one back here. When you were talking earlier about um, brokers and uh, registered investors, and you were saying about how we could do our homework, one of them was uh, looking up the FINRA, but you mentioned another one before that, and I didn't get it. 
Um, the question was, when you do your research on an advisor, um, you can look up through FINRA, and there's one other um, that you can look at. There's two associations um, that one is called NAFA, the National Association of Fee-Only Advisors. It's, the initials are N-A-P-F-A, and they have a list of advisors. And they're financial planners and advisors. That would be, that would be my other choice, those two. Is there, um, is there any kind of paperwork, basic pamphlets for people here that might get an overview of, for example, what a registered advisor does versus a broker-dealer, et cetera, where they draw comparisons? Does consumers do this? Does there a, a Kimplinger do it or, you know, whatever? Is there some ge- general basic foundational guidelines for people? Um, there are not general, there's not like a chart, the check marks on one side and the other. However, um, what I can do is I wrote, I did some research and wrote a story on this for Today's Chicago Woman, and I can send it to Karen if, if you like, and she can disseminate it. I skipped the the item you were mentioning, which one is the best uh, secure investment that from your personal point of view that we can invest? Um, the best, if you're going for 100% safety, total secure, well, as much as we can, um, on the highest end of the spectrum, I prefer CDs, short-term government securities, um, and bank-insured money market funds. Now, you're you're below inflation rate, so you're actually losing purchasing power, but you have opportunity power. And when I say that, when interest rates start to move up, you have an opportunity, that money is liquid, and you can move it, well, except for CD, depending on the maturity. You can move it into other investments. Um, so it's, yes, you are losing purchasing power. That would be con- considered short-term then, right? <clears throat> Just to make that money available. Exactly. Yeah. When you are talking about short term, how many years is it? Or six months? Or one year? I, you know, I would put, um, if, if I was advising someone who wanted to keep some money safe but wanted to leave it open for opportunities when interest rates move up, I would probably stagger over, I would do a six month, a one year, 18 month, and a two year period, stagger it. And then as the six-month comes due, we invest it, and, you know, if rates have gone up a little bit, we keep investing it into higher returning opportunities within that category. At this time, with the stock market in pretty good shape, should you have CDs or put the CD money in the stock market? Okay. Or it can grow, even short-term. Okay, the question is, do, we put, do you put the money in CDs or do you invest in the stock market now? Um, that's market timing. And most people that do market timing get it wrong more than 50% of the time. So I'm not a market... T- I can't tell you what's going to happen, what the economic information is going to come out, what the earnings rates on corporations. Um, the, so that's why we dollar cost average. If you said, I'm all in CDs, but I want to, put, I want to get in the stock market... I would say let's put a little bit in over a period of time, maybe over a period of 12 months, and we don't work our way in slowly. You cannot guess when the markets are overvalued or undervalued. 
I know what dollar cost averaging is in the back of my mind. Could you give a quick definition of that again? Sure. You want to invest $1,000 into the stock market. It's sitting in cash. Rather than put 100% of it in the market today, we're going to put it in over a period of 12 months. So every three months, we're going to put a quarter of that money into the mar- invest it into the stock market. Um, that way, it picks up. Um, we, we smooth out the volatility that's associated with put it, that would normally happen if you put all the money in at once. Yes. Rick? Oh, good question. What is a reasonable fee to pay a financial advisor? Um, if you have assets of under a million, assets that they're managing, maximum 1.5%. I would say anywhere between 1 and 3 million, around 1% is probably reasonable, give or take. It depends what they're going to do for you, too. If they're doing a lot of financial planning, you might be paying a little bit more. And then I think over three million, you start getting down to something like seventy base, seventy. I say it's seventy basis points. It's seven tenths of one percent. Um, those are general numbers. If you've got somebody you really like, they do a lot of work for you, and they're, they're pay, charging you a little bit more. I think you're fine. Three, three on up. You want me to keep going higher? <laughs> That's right. million. Is that um, per year on your total portfolio? On assets under management. On assets. Assets under management. One and a half percent. And then you're going to be paying fees on the underlying investments. Yeah. If you've been in a brokerage situation where you're paying commissions, you've been paying a lot more than that. But now now you're seeing it, so it looks like a lot. But in reality, you're probably going to be paying less than you were before. Question over here. Oh, here again. Um, as far as as far as tying stuff together so that you get your maximum returns on your money, how do you use the advisor to 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 work in with your tax planner or your other people? Do you try to get an integrated type of program where they all really work together, or do you try to make them work together, or what do you look at to make this happen? Uh, the um, most advisors is the person that will um, triage your estate plan, your tax, your accounting, all of that together. And the reason is because they're the ones that are meeting with you on a regular basis. You don't probably don't meet with your state attorney on a regular basis, especially for what they charge. Um, your accountant's probably charging you an hourly fee too. So your advisor is charging a percentage of assets. So you tend to use them more because you figure I'm paying them anyway. Um, and so they're the person that really knows your whole picture and your whole story. And then they can tell you. They can say, you know, you're d- with this happening or something happens in a child's life, you need to talk to your state attorney and amend your estate plan. Or you need to talk to your tax advisor because I can see this coming down the road. And, and they should be coordinate, helping you coordinate. Are you saying then the focus of the people here and myself and that should be to go with the advisor first and get a good get one that's good and understandable and knowledgeable about your situation and then use him to triage into the all the rest of the people or to use him as the as the person to triage for you. I mean are you, you know, is that what you're saying? 
Um, the question is, do you start with an advisor first and then let them triage? Um, I see two scenarios. I see people going to their advisor first. Um, I also see people going to their state attorney first and then moving over. Um, generally, uh, the advantage of going to your advisor, I'm putting more work on the advisors, is by going to them first, is they can help you put together an outline. You know what your assets are by the time you're done with the advisor. You know where you stand. You know how much you've got to spend. You know how much, hopefully, when you leave a legacy is there. And having that picture, then they can help you outline what you want to accomplish in your estate plan. Then you can take that to your estate attorney, and you're working more efficiently with your estate attorney. And they charge at $300 an hour. You want to work efficiently with your estate attorney. So that's, that's putting more work on your advisor. But if they're willing to do it, a lot of advisors are. Um, in order to manage your money, they've got to understand your situation. They need to understand the big picture so in, it, to do it right. My website, well, thank you. Uh -huh. um, there's not, it's not on any of the information. It's uh, Stafford Wells Advisors, S-T-A-F-F, -F, F as in Frank, O-R-D, Wells as in W-E-L-L-S, Advisors, o -R, that's an O-R-S at the end, dot com. It's long. Um, oh, no, dot com. Org would be not for profit. Stafford Wells Advisors, yes. Dot com. Yeah. I, you know, typically, and I think you should expect this with anybody that you go to interview, um, most advisors, and I do the same thing, is I'm willing to sit down for a half hour, 45 minutes, go over your information, give you some ideas, help you get a handle on what you're doing. And if you think that there's an interest there, then we can go forward and talk in more depth about working together. Um, but it's, you know, it's, this is a business. It's a business of, of making a difference. Where are you? Oakbrook uh, and Spring Road. Oh, back here. Okay, I'll be right there. Okay. Could you give uh, us a quick synopsis on the positives and negatives of market timing? Sure, I'll give you an <laughs> I can answer to this one only because I've, I've seen, I see everything. People bring me statements. I've seen it all come across my desk. Market timing means going in and out of the market based on where, when you think there's an opportunity. Extreme market timing means going all the way into the stock market and then all the way out. There you're betting. Every time you go in and out, you create a tra taxable transaction, first of all. So if you're winning, which is great, you're going to pay the maximum tax rate on your gains, assuming it's not in your IRA. Okay. Second, on average, market timing doesn't work. Uh, there's market, that's, you don't, it's hard to find a market timer advisor out there. They don't last very long um, because you just can't guess the market. So I guess that's the thing. One, it's return reducing, and two, it's, it's not tax efficient. Here she is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, earlier in your talk, you made a couple of references to life expectancy, and one of them was the lady who's 65 and 30 years. So, where, are you, how are you coming up with those life expectancies? Is there a chart or something you use? You know, I ask my clients. I, people, I think intuitively, kind of know where they're going to end up. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> 
No. And then, yeah. then you add another five onto it just to play it safe. Um, but I usually ask them. Um, you know, the insurance companies have charts and age is going up and everything, and so you can use that. But sometimes you know if there's a history of illness in your family or you know how you personally feel about your health. And um, so we just make sure we take what's reasonable for you and then add a few more years onto it. And, and also, if um, someone is not particularly interested in leaving money for family members, I mean, in our case, we have no children outside of, you know, some philanthropic mm-hmm. desires. We, you know, we're kind of, it, it's kind of a game of, you know, how do we, you know, make this last and not have a lot left over. And so that strategy would be different than, say, somebody who's looking yeah. Absolutely. And there's a lot of things you can do philanthropically um, where you can gift assets but still use them, and you get the tax deduction. So you get to use them in your lifetime. You get the tax, a portion of it is tax deductible right up front. Oh. And then upon your death, it goes to the charity. And the charity's recognizing you for it now as opposed to when you're, you know, when they should be recognizing you. And, and would an advisor be able to steer you in those directions? Absolutely. There's also something else. And as much as I'm not a big fan of annuities, um, there are gift annuities that are kind of interesting because you could, if you gave them, say, $50,000, the rates that they pay on annuities are, could be around 6%. And part of it, your gift is deductible um, up front, and then you get that stream of income for your lifetime. And then upon, once you decease the remainder if there's anything left, goes to the charity. Um, there's some really interesting things you can do with gifting. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. Oh, I, I just wanted to run this by you. I know you said you're not good with annuities or not real well-versed with them, and neither am I. And I've always heard they're bad and whatever. Uh, but I was thinking, rather than I've had advisors who want me to put a, a really big amount into an annuity, and then your money is just locked up forever in, in those life annuities. But what do you think about like putting like ten or $15,000? They have annuities like for 10 years uh, where you could put like ten or $15,000, which isn't a huge amount of money. It's a smaller amount that you it, it would pay more than a CD and maybe uh, interest on a money market. Uh, I'd feel safer. To, I don't want to lose ten or fifteen thousand, but I'd rather lose that than a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, I was considering that because uh, I don't know what you know, and I find this very hard to understand. It's hard; the investments are hard for me to comprehend. Um, there's no, you know, your comfort level is what's critical, and I think that's the most important thing. Um, I have a client that got a big settlement, and. Um, and he came to me. He's a very smart man, MIT grad, um, very smart man. And he said, I'm going to put a portion of this in an annuity. And I said, let me run the numbers for you. And I got the annuity, and I, I got the um, fact sheet, and I ran the numbers for him. And I said, it really doesn't make sense. He goes, I know. But he said, it makes me feel comfortable. So he understood it, and he made that decision. So there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I think long-term care has an important part in someone's portfolio, but not always, and it depends on the situation. Um, When I talk with other advisors, they say they all put their clients in long-term care. Um, But I say, do you personally have long-term care? And 75% of them say no. 
So there's something telling there. Um, you know, they're kind of, there's, but I think, so my feeling on it, and this is kind of an intuition thing talking with people, is if you, there's a history in your family or you're concerned, um, I think long-term care makes a lot of sense. We're not exactly sure where it's going in terms of pricing, but it's protection, it's, it's peace of mind, and I think that's a very valuable thing. You can't put a, necessarily put a price tag on that. Um, if you have sizable assets and you can <clears throat> self-insure, that might be a better way to go. And we usually try to look at that and decide um, what the best direction is to take. How, how efficient are they in terms of their contracts and so forth as far as there's no ROI that you look at them? You're just looking at the protection. Is that correct? You're looking Pretty at much? the protection, although somebody sent me one the other day that said, um, if you don't use it, you get your money back. And I thought, this, this is really interesting tactic. Because when you think, think about your auto insurance. Some, you get a ding in your car. You don't want your auto insurance to go up. So you go pay for it out of your pocket. If you go into long-term care, maybe, and you think it's only going to be for a few, you know, a few weeks, you're not going to tap into your policy because you figure, I'm going to get my money back. So I think it's a real interesting kind of approach. Um, but other than the one, that type of situation, it's... Um, it's not an ROI. It's an ROI personally. Writing this stuff, how can you be sure that the underwriting is going to be there? I'm going to give you a brief answer, and then I'm going to get Linda. She's going to address this here. Um, she's she's an expert on this. But um, the insurance companies are not only by, because they're regulated, but they're also um, they're there's an insurance protection on the insurance companies by the state. Now, granted, I know you worry about the state of Illinois, but um, there is. <laughs> The insurance companies, they're highly, the majority of the ones that anybody's going to present to you are very highly rated. Um, so I think you should feel pretty comfortable from that standpoint. Go ahead. Yes, uh, just to let you know, uh, very important, there is a return of premium that you can get on uh, long-term care. That's one of the options. And, you know, we customize it to what you need and what you want. So, and we do underwrite, yeah. I had a comment for the question about grandchildren. My understanding is, say a grandchild babysits or mows grass or does something that they earn $1,000 in a year, but they spend it all. But because they earned, say, $1,000, my understanding is then maybe the grandparent wants to give them 1000 in a Roth IRA. So, I mean, so I, my understanding yeah, is yeah. that it can be as much as the child earned. And then you put it in a Roth. And when my son was um, uh, in college, a freshman or something, I read an article about if a person earned 2000 a year from 16 to 20 and put it aside, and this is a few years ago when things were earning more like 6%, but if you only put that 8000 away when you were under 20 and left it alone until you were 65, in those rates, you'd have a million when you were just on that. So he got all inspired. And so in his summers, he earned 2000 And, you know, he, we have a neighbor who's 80. He was mowing her grass. And she was so amazed. Like, he was like, I'm saving for my retirement. And, and he did. And when he'd go out to, to be with his friends at a restaurant, he would drink water. Instead of paying to take a girl out to a movie, he would bring her to our house and show her a video. And he saved that money. He got a really good return. And then now he's married with a baby. And I think they used that Roth IRA to buy the first house. 
So he, he impressed the neighbors by saving for his retirement. He was very motivated. Now, he did that himself, but if in the, my neighbor, who's older than I am, um, she actually funds her grandchildren's Roth IRAs up to the amount they've earned. So there, there are ways you can help people. Those Roth IRAs that never are taxed are just wonderful if they put it away for a long time. Great idea. Also, we uh, do educational workshops, and we'd be happy to uh, educate grandchildren and whatever. So if it's something we want to do here, sounds good. Another way you can do is in your will. It's time of their life when they will receive that amount. And then you can leave them all the money that they want, and with the stipulation on that. But they won't, for instance, in my particular case, my grandchildren won't be able to touch any of it until they're 30. And then when they're 35, they can draw it all out. I think if they don't have sense by then, they never will. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes. Um. You were uh, speaking of grandchildren and funding a Roth IRA. I thought that was determined by their income as to how much uh, they could, you could fund. And if they're not earning anything. Oh, they are. But if they mowed grass or they babysat and they earned a thousand. If they do earn money, if they have an income, then they can have an, a Roth. But they have to have income. They have to have income. Right. They have to and have a job. And you have to know how much it is, or can you just put in the full amount? You can't. You, you know, in order, you can only put in the amount that the child makes. So okay. you need to know if you want to maximize it. You need to know how much they've made. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you all. It's been delightful. I've learned a few things from you guys too. So <laughs> thank you.